Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church Owasso Sermon Podcast. Grace changes everything. Where are you going? Has your GPS ever given you wrong directions? Not long ago on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, Richard Carnes was trying to make his way to New Jersey. He was new to New York City. He was visiting. So he followed his GPS directions, and it said to turn left. And so Richard Carnes turned left, not knowing the city well at all. But in, and there, suspended on the stairs, a tow truck found old Richard Carnes waiting. Yazu Nada, who was 21 years old, was visiting with two college friends, the great country of Australia. And they decided to drive to North Stradbrook Island off the coast of Brisbane. But what the directions didn't account for was the nine-mile stretch of water that separated the mainland from the island. And so in his Hyundai, he followed the voice in the machine. And the road that Google Maps took him on became gravel. And then it gave way to thick mud, and then water began to lap the side of his Hyundai until he recognized that he had just driven into Morton Bay. And the local uh, 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 reporter asked him, why did you keep following the voice? And he said, the voice kept telling me that it would navigate us to a road, and I listened to the voice. Sabine Moreau just wanted to pick her friends up from the train station. She lived in Brussels, and the train station was to the north of Brussels, but she trusted the voice in the machine, and she followed it south. The 67-year-old woman didn't question the GPS. It knew what was right, and she stuck by the app even when she had to stop to fill up with gas. And she passed the German towns of Frankfurt and then Nuremberg, and only when she saw road signs in Croatian did she recognize that she might not be going to the train station? She drove across two countries the wrong way. And when she finally got a hold of her friends, all she could say was, I'm so sorry, I got distracted. And their reply was, by 800 miles? <laughs> Listen, what's the lesson here? The next time the voice in the machine tells you to hang a right where there is no right to hang. <laughs> Trust your eyes instead of making one of these mistakes. Where are you going? Do you even know where to go at all? Jesus asks us that question a lot. God, in fact, in Genesis chapter 3, asked that very question to Adam, didn't he? Adam, where are you? Adam listened to a voice tell him to grow the wrong way. And ever since then, we have been listening to the voice too. You've received an invitation this morning to come to Jesus for rest. In this passage, Jesus is concerned that his disciples are going the wrong way. Why? 
to put it succinctly, Jesus is concerned that they are falling into the trap of Pharisaism. Before we ever get to prayer, before we ever look at why we are to pray, we have to ask the question, are we going the wrong way? Have we been listening to the voice? What is Pharisaism? I don't mean Pharisaism in a strictly religious sense. A Pharisee is anyone who is driven to perform as a way to prove him or herself worthy. Worthy of what? Does it matter? It doesn't matter. For the religious, it's worthy of God's acceptance. But for the irreligious, it's worthy of the world's acceptance. Both the religious and the irreligious operate under the same pharisaical principle. And it's leading me and it's leading you the wrong way. And if we're going to understand this, we have to understand why we often go the wrong way. And in this passage, Jesus shows us that there are three reasons why we often go the wrong way. Number one, that you are too smart for your own good. Number two, you're too distracted to get there. And number three, you are too burdened to let it go. First, are you too smart for your own good? Where are you going, Jesus asked the Pharisees earlier in Matthew chapter 11. And you know what they said? I'm trusting in the voice of the law. I'm going to obey the law even to my death. I'm following the traditions of the law. I'm going to church. I'm having my quiet time. I'm doing those things I should do. And Jesus says, oh, friends, there's a way to do those things, and you miss the beauty of my rest. Jesus says to the Pharisees, and he says to the 21st century evangelical, he says even to those of you in this room, because he certainly has said it to me a hundred times this week, are you coming to me for rest? Jesus says to the Pharisees, the point is to follow the law to its intended destination, which is repentance to see me as the Messiah. I am the fulfillment of the law, not through worldly conquest, I am the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the temple. But the truth is hidden from the wise and understanding, and it is given to little children. That's what he says in verses 25 and 26. Look, the Father has hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and he has revealed them to little children. For such was the Father's gracious will. By wise and understanding, Jesus is using this sarcastically to refer to the Pharisees who believed that they were self-sufficient. They didn't feel like they had a need for what Jesus offered. They were wise in their own eyes. And the little children are those who were the simple and who believed, who came to Jesus with faith, who saw that Jesus was the fulfillment of all their hope longed for. And Jesus says that it is only the little children who are needy who are able to come to me for rest. You might translate the passage from the Greek into English in this way. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the hardworking, budget-savvy know-it-alls, but spilled it out clearly to ordinary people. There was an American businessman who was visiting this beautiful Caribbean island on vacation, and he was walking down the beach one morning, and he happened upon 
this fisherman, this young fisherman who was mending his nets with a boat full of fish. And he thought that he would stop and engage in a conversation. And he said to this young fisherman, how long did it take you to catch all these fish? And he said, oh, sir, it only took me two hours. Two hours? What do you do the rest of your day? He said, oh, I go home and I I hug my wife and then I go and spend time on the beach with my friends. I go take a nap and then I play a little guitar and I enjoy a beverage as I watch the sunset. And the American said to him, I'm an American businessman and I'd like to teach you how to scale your business. Oh, please, sir, teach me. He says, well, first thing you do is you hire somebody to learn to fish like you and you rent your boat out all day and you fish like that all day long, which will give you enough income to then buy two boats. Oh, that's a good idea, sir. Thank you. What else? Well, then eventually you have enough boats that you get too big for this place and you need to move your company to Miami where you buy a fleet of boats. Oh, that would be amazing, sir. Then what? Well, then you take your company to New York and maybe you get some investors to invest into you so that you can fish like this all over the coast. Well, sir, what after that? He says, well, then it's the best part. Then you move to a small, beautiful Caribbean island and you fish for two hours in the morning. And then you go home and you hug your wife and you spend time on the beach with your friends and you can take a nap if you'd like and then you play the guitar and then you enjoy a nice drink as you watch the sunset. Oh, thank you, sir. You are very smart. And the businessman says, you're welcome. And he walks along his way. How do you know if you're too smart for your own good? One of the ways you know you're too smart is if you are really excited that your spouse is listening to this sermon right now. Another way you wonder if you're too smart is you wonder, who does he think he is preaching like that? And by the way, I need this sermon worse than anybody. Do you wonder why the church is not impressed with, the world is not impressed with the church? It's because the people who are desperate to be here, who really want to be here, can't get in because your egos are too big. And maybe, just maybe, if the evangelical church understood the invitation that Jesus offers them to come to him, that they would recognize themselves not as too smart for their own good, but they would truly begin to find rest in his finished work for us. How do you know if you're too smart for your own good? Quite frankly, you don't pray. You don't value prayer. You don't see the point. You don't take time to talk to your heavenly father. Maybe it's because you're too smart for your own good. Or maybe you're too distracted to get there. Jesus tells us in a parable in Luke chapter 18, he says, the two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this. God, thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector 
standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But the tax collector beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, that this man went down to his house, justified this tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is teaching his disciples in that context about two kinds of righteousnesses. First is an impressive parade of a sham righteousness. The performance righteousness before the world. Fixated on behavior modification. And the second one is a true righteousness, which is unrecognized oftentimes by the world at all. And the punchline here is that maybe, maybe, this might be true of us. And there is no obvious temptation to be like the Pharisee in this context, is there? But I think we sometimes underestimate how charming, how exemplary the Pharisee actually was. He was generally admirable. If you were to take this Pharisee out of that context and you were to put him at Trinity, he might be applauded for being a model elder. You might love to hear him pray. He might be a a, a, a pious paragon of virtue. The first words out of his mouth are, God, I thank you. He's obviously grateful. He recognizes who has given him what he has. He may even believe that grace changes everything. Thus, he is very grateful. But he's at the temple. That means he's at worship. He's practicing the Sabbath. And as Luther says, maybe we ought to admire the beautiful, proud saint, the Pharisee. Because there's a Pharisee in us all. Yet we are way too easily impressed by ourselves, aren't we? The Pharisee certainly was. He was scrupulous in all the wrong ways, much like I and you often are. He did not know his own heart. He focused on behavior, but he failed to see how deep God's scrutiny really goes, showing an ignorance of God's word. And some of us know the Bible very well. We loved Awana. We can crush sword drills. We have God's word memorized in our heart. But we have so cherry-picked passages throughout Scripture, we have forgotten the entire storyline of the gospel from Genesis to Revelation. We have used the Bible as a how-to manual instead of a worldview through which you understand yourself to be a sinner and God's beauty, holiness, and justice as the Messiah who has come, died, resurrected from the dead, and will come again, amen, to make everything new. We forget that as a worldview for when you're doing your taxes. We forget that as a worldview for when you are parenting your children. We forget that the gospel is not just a truth to be believed in, but it is a worldview through which you see everything in life. We forget that God's word is actually far more scrupulous than we could ever imagine it being. The author of Hebrews says, God's word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides soul from spirit, joint from marrow, because it discerns what? The thoughts and the intentions of the human heart. John in John 7.24 says, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. The way to know that you're too smart for your own good is to recognize the depth of your sin. But the way 
to stop being so distracted so that you can actually get where God desires you to be is to recognize his beauty. Thomas Chalmers, who is an old Puritan, wrote an article called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It was a sermon, actually. And what Thomas Chalmers says is that there are two ways a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the human heart its love for the world, either by a demonstration of the world's vanity, seeing what the world offers, and that is one way to get rid of it, to say, I see what the world offers, and I want nothing of it. But he says, that's not a lasting way to actually set your heart aflame with the beauty of Jesus. You have to have a new affection that is so powerful, it expels the world. And when you understand Jesus' beauty, which no one perhaps is able to say it better than Jonathan Edwards, when he says the first effect of the power of God in the heart is regeneration, to give the heart a divine taste or sense, to have it relish the loveliness and sweetness of the supreme excellency of the divine nature. Isn't it just beautiful to hear the way he describes Jesus? Like sweetness, like honey on your tongue. Like water in a weary land is the beauty of Christ. If God, by an immediate act of his love, gives the soul a relish of the excellency of his own nature, then other things will follow without any further act of the divine power than only to show what is necessary, namely to uphold the beauty of Christ in the mind and heart of the saint. And if you only come to church once a year for Easter, then it's probably a pretty good sign that you don't believe the resurrection. And if you only pray when you're in trouble, it's probably a good sign that you have never tasted the sweetness of Christ. Do you know where you're going? Maybe you need to humble yourself before the offerer of the gospel this morning and believe the good news. It is possible to be a Pharisee. It is possible to know God's word. It is possible to even work for the church. It's possible to even be a minister of the gospel and yet not know your heavenly father. You know why? Because you act like orphans. And one of the marks that you have ceasing to act like an orphan is that you pray to your heavenly father like he is your friend and that you are accepted in his sight. Do you believe it? You may be too smart for your own good, but I hope the gospel helps you recognize that Jesus can give you true wisdom. You may be too distracted to get there, but I hope you recognize that if you see the beauty of Christ, you're able to be focused on what is true, beautiful, and good and to run into that presence and be still. But yet some of you in this room are still too burdened to let go. In the shadows of the Pharisee, Jesus invites all of us to experience the refreshment of being his disciple. The notion of being heavy laden or weary is drawn from the world of agriculture where the labor is hard and the loads are difficult for both man and for beast. And Jesus here uses this as a metaphor for the heavy load of religious practices that the Pharisees often foisted upon the people of God back then. And the Mosaic law was never intended to be burdensome as we heard earlier from, from Chris and Lisa as they read from us from 1 John chapter 5. It was meant to be a delight. It was meant to humble us, to lead us into deeper trust that one day there will be one who comes, the Messiah, who will be able to fulfill this. 
And the law was intended to mark out and make distinct God's people from amongst the people of the world to say, why is it that they continue to flourish? Even as they have a special diet, even as they go and worship in a unique way, it was always meant to separate them out and make them unique as they trusted in the finished work of the coming Messiah. And today, you can have all the trappings of a wonderful modern Christian. But if you don't recognize that it is your faith that links you with his covenantal love, as you lean into that, then you are too burdened to let it go. You're still heavy laden. And the irony of this passage is that the whole book of Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, the whole point was that Jesus was trying to show the Pharisees, yes, even Israel, the Jews, that Jesus' kingdom is coming in power through faith in his finished work, not works. And he demonstrates Jesus' qualifications of why he is the true king in the first four chapters. And then he gives the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 to 7 to talk about who can truly enter his kingdom. And then he instructs his disciples in chapter 10. And he says that I'm the true authority with the true message for the true Israel. And then in 11 and 12, he turns. He turns from the religious, the Jews, the Pharisees, and he turns his eyes on the Gentiles. And he says, woe to you. And he turns his eyes to the outcasts. And he says, I will come even to the little children Where is the wise? Where is the scholar of the age? Jesus says, I will come to those who are needy, who are not too smart for their own good and who are not too distracted to ever get there. I will come to those who know they're burdened and I will invite them to lay their heavy burdens down. The word for rest is anapao. Ana, like Anabaptist, it means again. Pao means to cease or to rest or to be still. Jesus says, come to me for rest again. And some of you think about your early Christian life, and you think about, oh, that was when I had real rest before kids. That was when I had real rest before you fill in the blank. Jesus invites you into that rest again, friends. And over the coming weeks, It is my prayer that we will allow the rightful response and joy of our rest in him to be a renewed sense of our prayer life and the importance of it and the essential nature of why prayer is so important. I've said this many times and I can't say it any stronger. The mark of the success and the glory and the growth of the church is not in the number of people in the seats. It's not in the number of church plants it's planted. It is in the vigorous kingdom-centered, fervent prayer life of its people. And so if you want to see this church flourish, would you, would you please continue to come to worship over the next several weeks and would you ask the Lord, Lord, give me a taste of your sweetness that I may commune with you in ways that I have never yet experienced or would long to experience again on a pao. And friends, this is important for us because Jesus is assuming that you need the rest And you say, is that true? Ah, yes, it is true. It's a memory trace of the rest that we once had in the garden. It's a memory trace of what Adam actually experienced and Eve actually experienced with God before sin, before they listened to the voice of the charmer of Satan and they sinned. They had rest. 
And the mark of us regaining that sense is our practice of prayer. There's a, there's a song that we often sing in this church. Weary, burdened wanderer, there is rest for thee. Do you know that song? I love that song. Weary, burdened wanderer, there is rest for thee. You want to sing it with me? Let's sing it together. Weary, burdened wanderer, there is rest for thee. At the feet of Jesus, in his love, so free. If you're too smart for your own good or too distracted to get there, if you're too burdened to let go, this is the song for you. Listen to his message, words of life forever blessed. Oh, thou heavy laden, come to me, come and rest. Listen to his message, words of life forever blessed. Oh, thou heavy laden, come to me and rest. Bring him all thy burdens, all thy guilt and sin. Mercy's door is open. Rise up and enter in. Bring him all thy burdens, all thy guilt and sin. Mercy's door is open. Rise up and enter in. Do you see him? Your Savior is waiting patiently for thee. Hear him gently calling, come, oh, come to me. Jesus, there is waiting patiently for thee. Hear him gently calling, come, oh. Amen.